The Andy Staples Show is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deal on last-minute tickets. Ticket prices drop right before the game starts. And because GameTime tracks prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, they're able to show you the best last-minute deals with prices up to 60% off. Want to go see Ohio State play Michigan? Go to GameTime. Want to go to the Iron Bowl? Go to GameTime. The GameTime app is simple, quick, and easy to navigate. Download the GameTime app in Google Play or the App Store and score last-minute deals on tickets up to 60% off. Welcome to the Andy Staples Show, a special edition the all-decade team, 2010s, the most recent. All right, we all suffer from recency bias. Well, this is the most recent decade of college football, and so we'll probably have the strongest opinions. I bring on the master of all our all-decade teams, editor Matt Brown. Matt, how in the world did you go through all of this? The all-decade teams, the games of the decade, and decide... Who's the best quarterback? What was the best game? How 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 on earth do you make that decision? I, I, and probably because it's so recent, I can't help but think there's no way I could decide, for example, who the best quarterback of this decade was without some serious arguments. How'd you figure it out? It's been a long year. That's true. <laughs> so this is you know our, our all-decade package at The Athletic, but... For the 150th anniversary of college football, all offseason, I did dec- all decade teams for literally all 15 decades and picked the best games and the best coaches and the best teams for every decade. So our all decade team for the 2010s is kind of a spinoff of that. And I added a second team, which made meant even more tough decision making. And it's like, yeah, it's I can guarantee you it is difficult to pick an all 1890s team or whatever, but at least there's not that many options. Versus the 2010s, it's fresh in our minds. So, okay, it seems easier in that in that way. I watched all these guys play. I know everything about them. But with the way offenses have evolved, there are so many options for some spots, especially quarterback. Well, and, and you I, – I think that's probably the most difficult decision to make. And I, I figure we can start right there. So I guarantee you – if you go to your athletic app right now and call up these all-decade teams, you're going to get mad. You're going to start yelling at us. So just – I'm okay with that. I understand you're yelling. I've experienced it a lot all year. You're I've experienced yelling at your phone. <laughs> so you have on the first team the best quarterback of the decade, Baker Mayfield from Oklahoma. Second team, Deshaun Watson from Clemson, which means still left on the table – Johnny Football, Marcus Mariota, yep. Jameis Winston, Lamar Jackson. Cam Newton. Cam Newton. Oh, my God. That's right, because <laughs> Cam Newton was in 2010 was when he played with Auburn. Yes. Even though he'd been at Florida previous to that. It is It is a and, – and, oh, by the way, Kyler Murray. Yep. So, Tua Tungavailoa. <laughs> You can keep going. <laughs> this is this is tough. I I don't know how you do this. Okay, but I will ask, what made you settle on Baker as as the guy? Okay, so how I picked the 2010 seems because I originally did this as part of the 150th with doing each decade, 
you know, my mindset, it's it's harder to pick all decade teams in college football than like the NFL because we're dealing with small sample sizes. We're dealing with four years at most, some three, some two, or in the case of a guy like Cam Newton, one. One, yeah. And it's okay. How do you compare careers and how do you compare, you know, we're just trying to look at what they did in college. Um, but a lot of times, like, it's only two or three years, so the accomplishments end up being pretty similar. But, you know, again, it's especially different when you're comparing guys from different eras. So it's at least easier in that we're just comparing guys who played in the last 10 years when football has – it's evolved a lot, but it's not like comparing guys from now to 1945. It's, you know, it's, it's a lot easier in that respect. But I still fall back on, okay, you have a lot of even guys. It's what did they accomplish? What are their tangible accomplishments – um, you know, obviously we're taking in kind of the eye test and statistics too, but you know, what did they accomplish in their college career? And it is a little bit easier in some respects than for guys who had longer college careers. But so you look at Baker Mayfield though, and he didn't win a national championship. So that is, you know, kind of a mark against him as a quarterback when you have some of these other guys here, but it's what he did as a walk-on guy who started his first ever game at, at Texas Tech as a true freshman, which is also unheard of. But that ends up well, in Well, Oklahoma. that's the thing. He's he's essentially a four-year starter. Now, yes. he got banged up a little bit at Texas Tech and didn't start every game that year, but he is essentially a four-year starter. So here's my go-to statistic with Baker Mayfield. No, number one, he did set the passing efficiency record two years in a row for single season. It's since been broken by Tua and Kyler Murray, but um, he did two years in a row. And... My favorite stat with him, though, is that, or fact, is that he finished in the top five of the Heisman vote three times, and actually in the top four three times. Here's how many guys have done that in history. Doc Blanchard at Army, Glenn Davis at Army, Doak Walker at SMU, all in the 40s, Archie Griffin in the 70s, he's the only guy to win the Heisman twice, Herschel Walker in the 80s, Tim Tebow in the 2000s, and Baker Mayfield in the 2010s. That is like a who's who of like all-time great college football players or names, big names, so that means Mayfield and Tebow are the only two guys who have finished in the top five of the Heisman twice as quarter or three times as quarterbacks. That's really hard to do to have that great of a season three times in a row to be, you know, it's so easy to fall out of the Heisman race with a couple losses or whatever. And Mayfield was so consistently great as a passer, you know, one big 12 titles, took Oklahoma to the playoff, set the passing efficiency records. So you add that all up for his career and it's, it's one of the best ever, and I feel like it's almost underrated in terms of how he performed at a consistent level three years in a row for these just amazing offenses. Yeah, it, it, the the problem I think some people will have, and, and this is where it was sort of jarring for me when I saw it, is because Kyler actually had a better year True. in his one year as a starter than Baker's last year, which I, it's, I spent an entire offseason saying, now listen – be gentle with Kyler Murray. Be kind because he has, you know, he's trying to replace a guy who put up absurd numbers, yep. who had one of the best seasons anybody's ever had. And then Kyler had a better season. And, and it's just, that's the hard part is, is Kyler and two seasons last year. I, I wish they hadn't happened concurrently. Agreed. Yeah. Because I think that diminishes the accomplishment when in fact, what we were watching was maybe the best two seasons a quarterback has ever had. It just happened to be two guys playing in the same year. This is where it's tough. No matter which quarterback we say, there's going to be a counter argument with somebody else. And it's not going to be a wrong counter argument. Like it depends how you view it. And 
we mentioned how many guys, like eight guys. Most oh, of them the you way, can make a pretty uh, compelling Trevor case. Lawrence. Trevor Lawrence, pretty good. But, you know, he did have – but what are we judging on? Last year he had – he, he That was national starter, championship he, he won last the year. The national championship, but he didn't start the whole year. So he didn't quite – you know, you could say individually too, and, and Kyler Murray had more impressive like statistical seasons or whatever. But you're right. You throw him in the conversation, he's probably going to be the number one pick in a couple of years. Um, so, well – then I picked Deshaun Watson's second team. It's like, okay, well, knock against him. Well, he didn't actually win the Heisman, and I though, think though his decisions were right. Could I think he would have won the Heisman in 15 and 16 had the vote been after the board. You might be right. You might be right. And the, so it, it it is tough to judge, you know, based on just, okay, he won the Heisman or not, and I used Heisman as a big justification for Mayfield, but because you could say, well, Christian McCaffrey should have won in 2015. Or, you know um, – you can make that argument in a lot of different years. But well, Sean Watson, you also go ahead. you also have Derrick Henry as a first team back, and I'm glad you do because the the longer we get away from Derrick Henry's career, the because I was not I had Deshaun Watson number one on my Heisman ballot in 2015. I thought Derrick Henry was a really good player, but I, I my you know view of of what a back can do for a team is okay if the team has a good offensive line. Do we know how good the back is really? But Derrick Henry was so important to that Alabama National Championship, and he's a cyborg. He is not yes. like any running back we saw in college football this decade at all. So when we did, when I did this in August, I did. I only had it twenty-two players. Did not have like an all-purpose spot, and Henry was not on the first team because I have McCaffrey and Saquon Barkley. But I put an all. I put a kicker and punter and all-purpose spot on on this team to expand it. And I'm like, well, this makes it a little bit easier. So I put McCaffrey in the all purpose spot. You could put Saquon Barkley there, either one of those two. And it gives an opportunity for three running backs to be first team. And I do think the guys on the second team in Zeke Elliott and Melvin Gordon have cases, but yeah, it's, I wasn't as sold on Henry as a pro prospect, but you look at what he did that year. It was Alabama just, you know, rode him completely on offense. I mean, he had how many carries 350 carries and was a dominant player who you could tell Nick Saban just loved. Like when, whenever Nick Saban was like asked about him, like in the postseason, he just lit up. Unlike Nick Saban usually does. He was does. effusive. Yes, Nick yes. Saban doesn't do that for most players because they just but, put but, so yeah. much on him. And it's like you know, I think I put Saquon on here because, I mean, he he ended up didn't having the numbers to win the Heisman, but like from play to play, the just highlight real ability of him was just unlike anybody else in the decade. Um, and Christian McCaffrey, we talked about, he set the all-purpose record. So those three, I feel like, based on it's kind of McCaffrey had the all-purpose record, uh, was such a great all-around player. Saquon had the most highlights. Derrick Henry is the only guy who's a non-quarterback to actually win the Heisman this decade. And for as much as I say McCaffrey should have won, it's not like Henry wasn't a deserving winner. I think Henry had a stronger right. case than Mark Ingram did in 2009. Well, McCaffrey, what's interesting now, and, and this is, again, looking back through the prism of history, McCaffrey was sort of the prototype for what you want in a back now where the best backs are also the guys who could be your best slot receiver if you put them there and that it's rare to find a guy who can be that but McCaffrey was that Barkley could have been that and it's just we realize now how special he was and it's interesting because Stanford obviously got a lot of production out of him but you look at some of these other offenses imagine what he could have done in them that's a good point yeah um, so I don't know. This was a pretty good decade for running backs. So it was tough. And you mentioned offensive line. It's like, okay, how do you judge 
Melvin Gordon, who did have some wide open lanes when he rushed for 2,500 yards or 2,400 yards. Um, but it's it's tough. But I, you know, he had three Wisconsin players who are candidates, right? Monte yeah. Ball could be on here based on his production, and Jonathan Taylor. Obviously, what we've seen the past few years, it's like I, wanted- I, I think Jonathan Taylor's the best of of the bunch. I think he's the best. I and and I know that the Rondane folks are gonna get mad at me for saying this. I think he's the best all around back Wisconsin's ever had. I may regret that choice too. Now it's like a kind of. But Monte Ball did, or sorry, Melvin Gordon did have the most yards in a season by anybody not named Barry Sanders. So that's also pretty good, um, obviously. But and then Zeke Elliott, who I put on here, it's like I almost didn't. And then you know, I was talking with our colleague Max Olson about some of the decisions, and it's like Zeke Elliott's postseason performance in 2014 was just otherworldly. It was the conference championship game against Wisconsin, and it was the playoff against Alabama and Oregon. You know, three straight 200-yard games. It was just ridiculous. And obviously, he was a great player a couple years in a row at 1,800-yard seasons. Uh, so, pretty good crop of running backs who, you know, we had to, you know, and Jonathan Taylor isn't even on it. And maybe that's the wrong decision, but it's quite a good group of players. So, I do want to talk about the one absolute no-brainer on this list, and that is Aaron Donald at defensive tackle. Yes. Uh, Aaron Donald, there's one game in Aaron Donald's college career that – Still blows my mind to this day. And I don't even think Pitt won this game, by the way. But he had six tackles for loss against Georgia Tech. Do you know how hard it is to have six tackles for loss against an option team? Like, it, it's not possible. And he did it. They did lose that game, which sounds very fitting for like a Pitt player we're talking about on the All-Decade team. And he's just such a unique player i mean you look he's the guy who's listed like six foot 285 in college he's playing defensive tackle which is you know generously position. listed at six foot yeah. 285 by the way and then you you know you're not usually talking about huge numbers for a defensive tackle we've seen a few like quinn williams last year and uh, damakon sue in, in 2009 but in his career Aaron donald 66 tackles for loss including 28 and a half as a senior in 2013 11 sacks 28 and a half tackles for loss four forced fumbles it's just absurd. And, you know, you think, I think looking back at the decade, who will we say was like the most iconic defensive lineman? Probably Jadavion Clowney. Clowney. And he had the but most iconic D- play. Donald was the best. Donald had the best and, career. And Donald is the best NFL player of the bunch too. Yeah. So yeah. it, I mean, it, it works out, but it's, it's interesting because we just kept looking at his size and saying, well, no, he, he can't, can't be a defensive tackle like this. And well, he still is. He's still the best. So it's a pretty good group. I mean, I was competitive. I did cheat by putting three defensive linemen on there. Um, you know, Clowney, despite the fact that his last year wasn't quite what we hoped for, it was still a fantastic college career, obviously. Um, you know, I'm glad I got to put two teams on here because it means I could include both Miles Garrett and Derek Barnett because I've learned many times in my college football writing career that if you mention Miles Garrett and not Derek Barnett, Tennessee fans get really, really mad and compare the stats. Uh, so I was glad I was able to sneak both in there. there, there um, there's one guy that, that I feel like is probably missing because uh, there is no nose on this team, by the way. I'm running uh, straight up the middle against this team. Other, unfortunately, Aaron Donald's probably going to kill me. Well, there's two two guys that I would, I would suggest. Uh, one, an undersized nose, Ed Oliver. Yep. Uh, but then... Deron Payne, I feel like he was a very underrated member of some really good Alabama teams and probably didn't get as much credit. And and then looking back, because Quentin Williams came in and had such a good year replacing him, 
maybe we don't realize how good Deron Payne was. And that's the weirdly difficult thing about Alabama with this is there are so many good players and sometimes they don't put up the biggest numbers in that defense, but there's just so many obviously amazing players. And then they, it's like you compare them and it's like, okay, who actually stands out? Like it's easy. Obviously Aaron Donald deserves to be on here and is one of the best players of the decade, but like, and, but Aaron Donald even stands out more because there's nobody on his team that compares to him at all. Alabama just had run after run of All-American, 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 well, NFL draft pick. So it's like Quentin Williams, deep, we're just looking at defensive line, it's Payne, Quentin Williams, Jonathan Allen, who I did have here on the second team who was a Heisman candidate his senior year. So it's, you can name like any number of Alabama players who, you know, I pick C.J. Mosley as the linebacker from Alabama. Which, which is crazy because he didn't back. really start until he was a senior. So <laughs> there you go. But, it's just <laughs> but he played a ton. It basically CJ Mosley was was their antidote for spread offenses. Yes. And so he wasn't officially a starter because they had not really changed the personnel in their defense yet to what they are now. So but he played a ton against teams, you know, that that spread it out. And then as a senior you realize, oh wait, no, he's the best player on the defense. But then it's like, how many Alabama players can can I actually fit on here? I ended up with Cam Robinson at offensive tackle, CJ Mosley at linebacker, Minka Fitzpatrick defensive back, uh, Jonathan Allen at defensive line. Um, can't I put Chance Warmack on here at line at offensive line? Uh, you could have put like five other Alabama offensive linemen. I kind of went off of what our colleague Aaron Suttles did for his individual all, Alabama All Decade team. Um, Amari Cooper's on here. Um, again, I didn't even mention like Barrett Jones, Ryan Kelly. They could have been on here. So it's it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, like Clemson, I only have a couple guys on here, Watson, Christian Wilkins, and there's a couple other candidates. Obviously, they had a lot of great players, but Alabama is just on another planet in terms of the all-decade candidates they had in, in 10 years, which makes sense because they spent over half of the decade at number one in the AP poll. They won all the national championships. It's just unlike anything we've ever seen. Well, let's, let's move off the – the, the players and talk a little bit about the games because we also have a, a list of some of the games that that changed and defined the decade I, I had to write about a couple of them I was at the Camback game in 2010 at Bryant-Denny Stadium it was actually Black Friday yep. uh, for for whatever reason they put that game on Black Friday and it was over I mean, that, that game was effectively over in the second quarter Alabama was running away with it Mark Ingram's running down the right sideline. He's about to score a touchdown. And Antoine Carter, who's an Auburn defensive end, comes out of nowhere and pops the ball out. It goes out of the end zone. Auburn ball touchback. And that play wound up being the difference because if he scores, Auburn never comes back. Auburn does not win the national title. That, that was a... I mean, if you're going to start the decade... And that, that Auburn team live dangerously a lot of that year but they seem completely cooked in that game and I, I I still don't know that I've seen a comeback like that no and it's you, you end up you know I did best games for like every decade and it's funny how then a lot of the best games end up being the best team of the decade losing like in the 80s a lot of the best games were Miami losses just because it was stunning and they tended to blow teams out when they won and lose dramatically when they actually lost same thing for Alabama this this decade. You start with with that, but it's you know it's the kick six. It's you know you've been to you were to far more of the best games than me this decade. But I was at the uh, national championship game in Tampa with Deshaun Watson and Hunter Renfro, and that's an all time great finish. And it was another game where it looked like uh, Alabama. It looked like just another t- 
tired Alabama win. Like I remember like everybody was like falling asleep in the first half in 2016. And then Clemson just comes alive in that second half and you have just this absolutely amazing uh, fourth quarter. I was standing on the goal line opposite where he threw to Hunter Renfro, but on that goal line, it was just like, it's unbelievable. Anytime Alabama loses and weirdly, I, some of the, most of the times I saw Alabama in person this year, they lost uh, to Ohio state in the sugar bowl to Oklahoma in the sugar bowl. And it's like, those are, it's the decade of Alabama, but so many of the most memorable moments are them losing. Oh, of course. I mean, I was at the 2012 game where Texas A&M goes in there and Johnny football won the Heisman that day. You know, that that's the only game Alabama lost that season. They wound up winning the national title, but I was the, the guest host on Nick Saban's radio show that Thursday night. And he essentially said what was going to happen. And then it happened exactly the way he said it would. He, if you listen to him that night, you just said, they're losing this game. He thinks they're going to lose. And everything he said came true on Saturday. That's, it's kind of remarkable. And that game stands out as one of those ones where like, it didn't actually, it didn't matter for Alabama event in the long run. Cause they ended up, you know, winning the national title, but it's like just one of those iconic performances and moments. And well, and it was huge for Texas A&M yes. in general, because that was okay. You've said we should be scared of the sec. You said we can't hang in the sec and you can make, you know, look, there's an argument to be made about all that down the road, but they're in their first year in the sec. They go in and, and beat the reigning King. Well, and the funny on thing his home is, field, you know, I mentioned, okay, we're talking about Alabama losses, but I do have to express some sympathy for one program, and that is Georgia, which oh no, three of the best games of the decade were Georgia losses to Alabama. You know, I you know we talk about Jalen Hurts leading the comeback in the SEC championship game in 2018. Obviously, you have second and 26, two to Devontae Smith in the 2017 national championship game. Incredible finish. And then the game that I don't want to say it gets lost because it doesn't. Georgia fans, you know, Georgia could have won that would have probably won the national championship if it happened differently, but. The 2012 Alabama-Georgia game in the SEC title game oh, was, was a like classic. a perfect football game. It was so good. It was so like, it wasn't, you know, too little defense, too much defense. It was just such a great back and forth game. Two teams trading punches that were clearly the best teams in the country that year. Sorry, Notre Dame, but we saw what happened in, in Miami. And it's just this unbelievable heartbreak for Georgia. But that was... That's just one of my favorite games. It was such a great game, both sides from start to finish. Well, and, and and Chris Connolly, the smartest player on the field, catching a ball he shouldn't catch, that he should have dropped. But you're trained to catch the ball. If he drops that ball, they get one right. more it's play. It's easy to say. It's easy to say. It's different to actually do it. Yeah. Well, and, and here's the other thing. The kick six happens the next year, and that overshadows – Probably an equally improbable Auburn yes. win against Georgia before that. I've rewatched that game, and it's just the the sequence of events for that to happen. I mean, there was that really – wasn't there a really long Aaron Murray review over whether he scored or not? Yes. Uh, and then, you know, Auburn, it's fourth and 15. And for that ball to be tipped so perfectly, I mean, that sequence of Auburn games that year. Because then it's like – it's kind of amazing that the national championship game against Florida State gets lost in the shuffle. It's almost, that was a great game and great That was a great well. game, too. Because Florida State, I think, I, I want to say had less than two minutes on the clock yeah, when they yeah. started their winning touchdown drive. So we, I mean, this is where it's, 
Like I had to rank the games for every decade. This decade was so hard. And it's not just because I remember all of these games and, you know, I've been covering college football professionally uh, most of the decade. It's just that the way college football has evolved, football has gotten more dramatic. You know, it's, it's offense. No, no lead seems to be insurmountable. You have all these quarterbacks putting up, you know, 4,000 yards and being good runners and all that. It's easier to come back. It's easier to score points in a hurry, which has created all of these dramatic finishes so in that sense, we were really spoiled this decade in terms of just, you know, it's the national championship moments, it's the conference championship game moments. But then even things like there was that one run in, in 2015 where you had the Michigan-Michigan State game uh, with the just bizarre botched punt that we'll never yeah. see again with Jalen Watts-Jackson. But there's like four weeks in a row where you had, I probably don't have them in the right order, but you had that, you had a Georgia Tech team that was three and nine that year had a walk-off block field goal return for a touchdown. On Florida, to State, Florida State, yes. You had, and that was Florida State's first loss. Yes, you had in a regular season loss in forever. You yeah. had uh, the Arkansas Ole Miss game where the Hunter Hunter Henry <laughs> yes, throwing behind that, his head. And Ole Miss would have won the SEC West. Yes, not for that game. And then, and not only that, so Arkansas gets that insane conversion, and then they went for two and missed it. And then there was a penalty, so they got to do it again. And then the other thing in that series was four weeks in a row was the Miami-Duke game where Miami won on a Cal-Stanford-type play that should have been called back like seven times, and the ACC admitted it afterward, but it wasn't called back, and they won. And that was just that was a four-week sequence of events where every week you had one of these just absolutely stunning, crazy things, none of which were on the level of the kick six based on the context of the kick six. But they're all just these crazy finishes that we just saw more of this decade. I was at one of the most important games of the decade. One, because it was an incredible upset. It was a, a shocking result. But also because of what it did, what, what, it, what it sort of caused. And so we'll, we'll turn the clock back to 2011. I, I was <laughs> doing a Big Ten Network show that, that year that required me to go to Chicago basically every Wednesday to, to film the show. So uh, I'm working at Sports Illustrated at the time. I go to Chicago to film this show, and I tell my boss from Sports Illustrated, I'm like, hey, listen, I haven't seen Oklahoma State all year. They're playing in Ames on Friday night. I think I can just drive from Chicago to Ames, and, and maybe I'll stop by stop in Iowa City on the way. Uh and so I'll cover that game, and then after the game, I'm going to drive to Omaha from Ames and take an Omaha to Detroit direct flight so that I can be at Michigan, Nebraska the next day in Ann Arbor. And my boss is like, you're nuts, whatever. Okay, fine, do it. <laughs> and so I roll into Ames on a Friday night, and sure enough, Iowa State beats Oklahoma State in overtime. Now, the Quinn Sharp field goal that was not a field goal because they said it wasn't any good. But if you watch it, if that goal post extends five feet higher, there might be a different result. And if there's a different result, Oklahoma State plays LSU for the national title. There is no LSU-Alabama rematch. There is no uproar from the Big 12 where they decide, you know what? We were wrong to oppose the SEC and the ACC on this whole 14 playoff thing. That was the game that gave us the playoff. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty wild to think what specific moments can do that. And you're right. No, I, I, I mean, think I think I, the playoff would have happened anyway. I yeah. know they were talking behind the scenes about would it. Would it have already. happened that quickly? I don't know that it would have. I, there, there may have been one more four-year BCS cycle before it happened. That's a fair question. Um, so it, it is funny to look back at some of the – it's not an under-the-radar under radar game, but it's like it's an Iowa State-Oklahoma State game. Most years that would mean not a whole lot. Obviously, On, a pretty Friday good now. On a Friday night. Friday I vividly remember where I was watching that game uh, because it was just this stunning result and, and – as you said, it just, you know, we think back to LSU Alabama that year twice and one game, which we can debate whether it was any good. And the other game, which was one of the worst games ever in the national championship. Um, and that terrible national championship happened because of Iowa state and the, the Ames magic, so to speak. And in case you're wondering, I wrote my story, which obviously, cause that was an overtime game. So it was very late filing story. I got in the car. I drove to Omaha I arrived in Omaha as the sun was rising. I made it on the plane and I passed out within two seconds of sitting in my seat. (laughs) When I woke up, I was in Detroit and I made it to Michigan Stadium in Ann Arbor for a noon kickoff. For Michigan against a team. Michigan won (laughs) 45-17. Yes, that was a boring game. I almost fell asleep. Michigan playing against a team that lives 80 miles from where I had been that morning. Uh, speaking of Michigan, I feel like we do need to bring up a Michigan game here, and that is the 2016 Michigan-Ohio State game. Oh, um, yes. Let's do bring that up, by the which, way. Which, I mean, that was, you know, I was uh, I was at the Penn State-Ohio State game that year, which ended up, I was there just, I was going to write about number two Ohio State with another, whatever, dominant win, and then that season completely changes. And it set up like the perfect last Saturday of the season for the Big Ten where, you know, it was Michigan-Ohio State, this huge top ten matchup. Big Ten title implications, then depending on that result, Penn State, Michigan State, Penn State could be playing for the Big Ten East title, which is what ended up happening. And it's because of, you know, it was a game that was kind of an old school Michigan-Ohio State game in terms of the scoring, and then it goes to overtime, and we end up with the spot, which I do think was the correct spot. It was a first down. I'm sorry. It was sorry. a first down. <laughs> you, can, you can slice it and dice it anyway. I've zapruded the hell out of that play. Agreed. <laughs> he made it. Maybe, but that by, was, maybe just by the nose of the football, but he made it. But that was like right after um, that Curtis, like Curtis Samuel had that play that was going to be like this big loss on third and nine. And then he just completely escaped traffic. Yes. And that set up fourth and one. So it's like this crazy Curtis Samuel play that, you know, he gets lost then because we just think about JT Barrett's run on fourth and one. But uh, it's exactly what you wanted out of an Ohio State game, Ohio State-Michigan game with those stakes. But then it's also the what if, of course, if JT Barrett is stopped two inches shorter, uh, what's our conversation about Jim Harbaugh like? Because Michigan goes to the playoff that year. It, Probably, assuming they beat Wisconsin. It's like if Susan Lucci had won Best Actress. <laughs> it, 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 would, it really would have changed. It would have reframed everything about Jim Harbaugh. And, you know... That's the interesting thing. Sometimes in sports, things are that close, but then it gets set in stone over time. And as as we look forward later in this week to yet another installment of Michigan and Ohio State, I do wonder, would, would we feel like this is a more even rivalry had JT Barrett not gotten that first down? Would, would, I, and I don't know. Because it still would just be one Michigan win, 
But Michigan would, getting to the would playoff last year have been would a different have, result. Michigan getting the playoff and winning the Big Ten would just completely change the perception because you know the biggest yeah. knock on Harbaugh is you can't beat Ohio State, can't beat your rivals, rivals can't win the Big Ten East. Well, they would have done all that that year in year two, and now we're in year in in 2019. The decade's ending, and nobody. I mean, maybe they can pull the upset, but it's just a couple inches, just like you said with the Iowa State Oklahoma State game, changed a whole lot. Matt. We're going to end it here, but I want to remind everybody, this is Rivalry Week. The decade's not over. We'll probably make another couple of these lists when it ends. I bet at some point in the next two weeks, you're going to watch a game that's on that list. Can I Can I ask you? put you on the spot and ask you a question about this? Yes, yeah, absolutely. What was the best game of the decade? Oh, I went can with I the it, I went with the kick six in my in my article. In, in I August. think it has to be the kick six. Can I give you Can I give you my favorite? Yes, which I admit is not the best. I hope it's the Bahamas Bowl because I wanted to shout out that too. Oh, I love that Bahamas <laughs> Bowl. Yeah, I was I was running around my office, or no, it wasn't. I was in my I was in my kitchen wrapping Christmas presents. I was also wrapping was presents during Christmas, that. It was on Christmas Eve. <laughs> yes, and 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 then when they went for two, I'm like. Wait, why are you going for two? I want to see more of this. And then realize, uh, yeah, overtime would have been kind of... Don't throw a fade, though. <laughs> no, yeah, right. Don't throw After a fade. After all of that, it. they do that. <laughs> but no, I will give you my favorite game. And it was a national championship game, actually. It was the first Alabama-Clemson game. I, I think we Great look game. at the second one, and, and you got the Renfro touchdown. But the world discovering Deshaun Watson. Now, people who'd been watching Deshaun Watson all season knew what they were dealing with. But the world discovered Deshaun Watson against Alabama because nobody had ever seen somebody do that to Alabama. Like Alabama had lost to Ohio State the year before, and, and Cardell Jones had a good game, but nobody had seen a quarterback just tear up Alabama's defense yes. the way that Deshaun Watson did that day. And that I think the the gutsiest and best in game call Nick Saban has ever made is that onside kick. And it just tickles me endlessly that the only time we've ever seen him really smile is after they got that onside kick. That's true. I was at that game as well, and it does – it was – from start to finish, it was a better game than the next year. Like Clemson, it was a great game. You know, in the 2016 game had the had the ending, which was, again, one of the best endings we've ever seen in a national championship game. But from start to finish, and just then that fourth quarter was also really wild with the onside kick and everything. Uh, 2015 Alabama Clemson, I was there too. It was – it's absolutely up there. I'm just going to throw in favorites too. We didn't mention the two Rose Bowls back to back, but Penn State, USC, and Georgia, Oklahoma in back to back years wow. were just two amazing shootout Rose Bowls that were just a joy to watch in every respect. Actually, in terms of start to finish, Georgia, Oklahoma, that Rose Bowl may be the best start to finish game of the decade. You can definitely because make that you case. had because of, of the swings. Oklahoma's crushing them. There's the the squib kick and Georgia kicks the field goal at halftime and you think oh, oh maybe 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 then Georgia's in control then Oklahoma suddenly takes control then Georgia comes back and, and sends it to overtime I mean, it, it, for, in terms of just heart attacks waiting to happen that had the most I think of any game in the decade that's probably true and it had playoff stakes as well it's it, listen. I love reliving this because the, this has been so much fun. These games were so much fun to watch. 
They're still fun to think about. They, they make me smile every time I think about them. The decade's not over yet. Just remember, we're going to see some more of these. Matt, thank you for joining us. We Pre eagerly await your next <laughs> all 2010s, all decade team. Looking forward to the uh, 200th anniversary of college football in, in 50 years. We'll, we'll see. When our, when, our pick, <laughs> when our pickled brains decide to make all the picks, we're, we're just floating in jars. I'm all for it. It's Let's been a good decade. It. Thanks for having me, Andy. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Matt. <laughs>